when we have Godly Play, there's always a period outside the door where the door person asks, are you ready? Are you ready to come in? Have you, oftentimes that includes taking your shoes off and quieting yourself, as you can imagine for some uh, of our little ones, quieting yourself might take more than one minute. Uh, for us, it might take more than one minute, so I invite you and ask if you're ready uh, to enter uh, this time in the space that is holy. I'm going to invite Sarah Brumeyer to read our scripture from Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain. He was transformed in front of them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I'll make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, look, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I dearly love. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anybody about the vision until the human one is raised from the dead. So one of the reasons I love the liturgical calendar is that it invites us each year to explore the mysteries of scripture over and over again. Uh, you're invited, you're actually like, if you follow closely, required to pay attention to some of these passages that we read over because they're really strange and odd. So if, you've, if you're on this journey, you'll, you'll spend time thinking about the transfiguration of Jesus each year for the rest of your life. Think about that. Think about the cumulative force of that formation, right? I think this is probably one of the top five strangest passages in the New Testament. So buckle in. Here we go. Um, but I love, I love actually some, we heard some of the musical meditation on this uh, earlier, that's, uh, that Sufjan Stevens song has become a tradition for us, but there's also a lot of great visual um, meditations on this, these icons featuring Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the mountain. This one is from the Ukraine, uh, or Ukraine, it's really beautiful, and, and the, the final one is actually like a like an indigenous um, idea of Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the mountain. You see, before the action turns to the cross and on to the resurrection, the season that we're coming up to, first we're given Jesus with his disciples, and we're given a peek into the mystery and into the glory of who Jesus is and who Jesus is for us. Jesus has been talking quite a bit about the cross leading up to this. If you flip back in your Bibles to Matthew 16, he, he, he starts to foreshadow. He starts to set his face towards the cross. He starts to talk about life through death, not a life that avoids death or goes around death, but a life through and that last beyond death. He starts to talk about what the kingdom of God is like. Remember, all of this must have seemed a little strange to the, the people he surrounded himself with, his hopeful buds. And they all had kind of different hopes. He had this really uh, motley crew around him, and, and they were all uh, pretty 
uh, uh, different in their expectations. Some of them were hopeful that he was going to bring about a political revolution, even by any means necessary. Some of them were hopeful that he would bring about a religious reformation. Some of them were hopeful that he would just teach them, maybe teach them how to be human. In Jesus, we kind of see this like uh, um, re- formation of their expectations in their minds and the, almost like this Goldilocks kind of character where he's saying like not too much not too little just right and pay attention to what I'm doing because I'll bring you into this new reality so the scripture that Sarah just read starts it says six days later and Jesus takes his star pupils Peter James and John and he takes them up to a mountaintop big things happen on the top of a mountaintop that's why we call those great formative experiences of our youth like mountaintop experiences, right? Because the air's a little thinner. It's a, it's a little more special up there. And then right then, right there on the mountaintop, Jesus was transformed in front of them. Some translations say Jesus was transfigured. Something is happening here. and We don't really have great words for it. We don't really know what's going on here. His face starts shining, and his clothes are shining white like light. But not only that, Elijah and Moses appear, and they're talking with Jesus. Like, Jesus is in the presence of, like, O.T. goats, like the greatest of all time in the Old Testament, Jesus, Elijah, Moses, the best of the best. And all Peter can say is, Lord, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> I love Peter. Peter is always like kind of a stand-in for us. Peter's the rock upon which the church is built. And Peter kind of says the things that we really would say, you know, before we pause and collect ourselves and say the things that we think we're supposed to say. That's Peter. Peter is us, right? Lord, it's good that we're here. And then he says, let's set up three booths, three shrines, three dwelling places. Not really sure what's going on here. Like, that's somewhere between Peter trying to house and contain this uncontainable moment, trying to domesticate it and make it more, uh, uh, like, a pin on a map, um, or it's just Peter trying to roll out the red carpet, trying to do something special. He doesn't know what to do, so he says, let's, let's build something to commemorate this, to house this. Either way, what Peter is doing is too little, just too little. So we're left to wonder if Peter's coming up short, and he's coming up short because he's trying to control a moment, or he's just trying to keep up with the moment. And again, I think Peter is us. The things of God, there's kind of two temptations. That we're going to be way ahead of God, doing too much, going too far, too fast, outpacing God, as if we could. Or we're going to be too far behind, just trying to keep up. Not, not diving into what God has for us. So today I want us to act a little like Peter, trying to get in on the action. Even as we don't have all the data. We don't really know what's going on. One of the best ways that I've learned how to do this is through some of the wondering questions of godly play. So first, before we even get as far as the transfiguration, we need to zoom in on each of these figures. 
when, when we do that, we start to see kind of this interesting logic of loop. And earlier in the week, I wrote in my notebook like a working title for this, and it never got erased. And so I call this loop kind of the transfigure eight, right? Like this, this thing that is like this in, internal logic that is kind of confusing and never ending, right? So Moses is a character we'll first tune in on. Moses' presence makes us flip back in our Bibles to remember who Moses was and why he's important. Little audience participation. Who is Moses and why is he important? Kids are welcome too because they probably know this better than us. Who's Moses? Why is he important? Exodus. Good answer. What, what are special things about Moses? Delivered the people from Egypt. Owen? He led the Israelites out to Canaan. Good. He gave the law. That's, that's big. That's big. Mountaintop and Moses in law. That's right. So an interesting thing that the Gospels do in general, and that Matthew really does in particular, is report the good news about Jesus by casting him as certain types that Jews, readers of the Old Testament, would have known. And so, in this way, Jesus is some sort of Moses type, maybe even a new Moses. And we're led to think that because of all the ways that Matthew narrates Jesus' birth and life and ministry and even death. It says that, like Moses, Jesus the infant was born shielded from the murderous decree of a ruler seeking to kill Hebrew children. Do you remember Moses being gathered out of the reeds, right? Like Moses, Jesus was called out, to, out of Egypt. His family became refugees from political violence. Jesus was called out of Egypt. Like Moses, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Like Moses at Sinai before he received the law. Like Moses, Jesus delivered his teaching on a mountain. That Sermon on the Mount is not coincidental. It's kind of a big deal. That's exactly where Moses got the law, Mount Sinai. Like Moses, Jesus had authority, authority to say a word from God, authority that was greater than the scribes. Like Moses, Jesus has mercy on the people because he says that they are sheep without a shepherd. Moses requests a leader after his death for the same reason. And like Moses, Jesus at the transfiguration hears a voice from a cloud on a mountain, and his face starts to shine, and he's gone for six days, right? That's, we're supposed to be hearing all these little things pinging and popping because we're supposed to think about Jesus as a type of Moses. And then at the end of Matthew's Gospel, it says, and it happened when Jesus finished these words, and that's like a Deuteronomy-style uh, authoritative um, uh, formula to say that, that Jesus' resurrection appearance in Matthew is a commissioning and a promise that I'll be with you for divine presence, just like Moses. So what is happening with transfiguration, this transfigurate 
logic that is happening is that we're able to look at one thing or one person and begin to see the past and present and future all in the same place as if they're laying over top of each other and kind of dazzling and sparkling. We don't really know what's going on and it's all happening at the same time. We're used to only seeing a slice. Now we get to see the whole thing. And just as your eyes start to adjust, it goes away. Right? You, you're seeing it more on the back of your eyes or in your mind's eye than you are with your eyes. And so we're seeing Moses and we're realizing Jesus is a type of Moses. So are Peter and James and John. And we're seeing that Moses transfigured looks like Jesus. This would have been a wild thing. Moses transfigured looks like Jesus. Jesus is the new and Jesus is the whole Moses sent by God to be a priest to God's people. So in godly play terms, I wonder why Jesus is like Moses. I wonder how Moses is actually like Jesus. And then then there's Elijah. Elijah's, if we remember, I I won't ask the audience, but be thinking in your head, who who is Elijah and why does Elijah matter? Elijah's a big deal too. Elijah is maybe the most fierce and well-known prophet this side of John the Baptist, so it's no coincidence that John the Baptist gets confused for Elijah. Elijah is kind of like a prophet's prophet. He has like all the best things going for all the prophets. Like Jeremiah is really good at mourning over the city. And, you know, uh, Hosea is really also physical in his taking up the mantle of, of prophetic speech to God's people to come back to, to a faithful God whom they've been unfaithful. Elijah does all this, but also the cool stuff, like raising people from the dead and bringing down fire on wet wood, right? Elijah is a prophet's prophet. Walter Brueggemann uh, is an Old Testament scholar. He wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination. He, he talks about the task of prophetic ministry. He says the task of prophetic ministry is to nourish, to nurture, and to evoke a consciousness and a perception that is alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. That means you can see with this description that that having heard the words of Jesus on the sermon, this prophetic ministry of evoking a, a Moses type, he's also an Elijah type.